Our focus today is going to be from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1, but for the sake of context, I'd like to read from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the Word of God. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart, they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is written today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil your truth to us. Be glorified in this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like you to use your imaginations. Imagine being 
invited by a mighty king to his private residence. It could happen, imagine it. He invites you to be with him at his palace. He takes you on a tour of his paintings. You join him for food. Every delectable delight is available to you. You walk with him in the gardens. You join him on his lake. You walk with him in his forest, in his woods. Every conceivable convenience is at your disposal. That's hard to imagine, but I know you can do it. Imaginations are powerful. That's what's in view here. Not just rest, not just the cessation of strife, the cessation of turmoil, but rest in an ultimate sense of an ultimate kind. From the annals of history, a man by the name of Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you might pronounce his name, who lived from 354 to 430 AD, once prayed this prayer, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. A far less eloquent way of stating this is, I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) The Bible presents us with the ultimate promise of rest. If you go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1, we read these words, Therefore, and whenever you see a therefore, we need to always ask, what is it therefore? On the basis of all that's come before, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, not just any kind of rest, but his rest, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is the first of 12 let us passages in the book of Hebrews. 11 more are to come. One other is in this passage. But this is the first. And the let us passages reveal to us the fact that The sanctification process, the goal of making Christians more like Jesus, is not merely an individual thing, but a corporate venture. It's a community project. God never designed for you or for I to live the Christian life by ourselves, but in community. Let us. And the local church is essential, and the writer will get to that in Hebrews 10 and other places, but the local church is essential to your and my sanctification. There should be, as we've already read in Hebrews 3, this exhorting of one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Rick Phillips writes these words. Reading this, I cannot help but recall my days as an officer in the United States Army, Every morning, early every morning, all the units would be out doing physical fitness training, hundreds of little units running in formation, often for long periods of time, and until the men were utterly exhausted. You could tell everything you needed to know about the morale and the leadership and even the combat effectiveness of a unit by the way they ran in formation. A good unit was all together, even if they had a slow pace, just a little bit. There was mutual encouragement going on. If a man fell out, 
And that is the very language in verse 1 here. If a man was exhausted or dispirited or lagged behind, a good unit would turn around to retrieve him, to exhort and bring back his determination. Not being a particularly gifted long-distance runner, I can remember times, Rick Phillips writes, when I thought I could go no further, but was virtually carried by the encouragement of my fellow soldiers until my legs regained their strength. That is what it is like to be part of a real team. The opposite of true was true of lesser outfits. The opposite was true of lesser outfits in poor units. You would see soldiers straggling way behind, falling out and even quitting altogether, while the main column went on oblivious. Soldiers who would have persevered in more cohesive units fell by the wayside. They fell short. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to avoid, especially since the stakes are so much higher in the matter of salvation. A good church, therefore, will not be defined by the size of its building, nor by the number of people attending, or the amount of money raised. Rather, by God's standard, a quality church will be one that leaves no stragglers to lag behind or perish in unbelief. The kind of church the writer of Hebrews is looking for is one where the discouraged are propelled forward by encouragement, where the weak find strength in the care of others and those in danger of being deceived are recalled to the truth in a spirit of love. That's a lengthy quote, but it's worth us hearing. So we have the word therefore, and then we have these words, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear. Fear what? Fear not entering his rest. Whose rest? God's rest. We note in passing that this is the first occurrence of the word promise in the book of Hebrews. And the promise here refers to the entrance into God's rest. There's a promise of entering his rest. Fear that you are not partakers of that rest. Not every fear is bad. There are healthy fears. I was uh, driving just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, in the neighborhood, a ball came off uh, the driveway where certain kids were playing and entered the roadway and near my car, and I had to slam on the brakes or else the little child would have just been hit by the car. I wasn't doing a fast venture, but I was traveling fast enough, maybe 20 miles an hour in that neighborhood section where it could have been very, very bad. I had to slam on the brakes and I wound my window down and I said, never, ever, ever run out without looking. There should be a healthy fear of cars. There should be a healthy fear of trucks. There should be a healthy fear of certain things, and that preserves us. And that's what's in view, a healthy fear. Let us fear lest something should be missed. A healthy fear. Be alarmed, in other words, at the prospect of missing out on this. It's a promise, but with this promise, there are two sides to the promise. Something wonderful is offered, but it leaves open the possibility of us missing out on it. And our problem, and humanity's problem, is that we settle for something less than the ultimate. We settle for the trivial. 
we settle for the empty pursuits when ultimate joy is available. C.S. Lewis, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, makes the point that we're far too easily pleased. He writes these words, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday or vacation at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. One, if you can turn with me, keep your finger or place in Hebrews and go to Jeremiah chapter 2. Jeremiah chapter 2 in the Old Testament. Look with me in verse 11. Jeremiah 2, 11. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. My people here references the people of Israel. Not everybody who was of Israeli heritage was truly gods, but they were God's chosen people. And God's assessment is that they have changed God's for no profit. Verse 12, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So ultimate joy is available in God, but the people of God have settled for something far, far less. Let not that be true of any of us. Let us fear, lest that be true of us. We can be deprived of the ultimate by settling for something else. And the good news is of the ultimate. The good news is we can know God and know Him for eternity. That might not sound like good news to you if you've got a false understanding of who God is, but if you're taught by the Scriptures who our God is, it's the ultimate. Gospel truth brings us to God. The gospel is the gospel about God, what he does to clear the way so men can approach him and be with him forever. God, as one man said, is the goal of the gospel. This, in fact, is Jesus' definition of eternal life. If we were to ask Jesus, what's the definition of eternal life? He makes it clear in John 17, 3. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, justification by faith alone, which is the heart of the gospel, God declaring us right in his sight forever based on Jesus' life, and death for us, and our receiving Him, our repentance and our faith in Him, justification by faith alone. If you could think of it as a certificate that says, you are welcome in the 
presence of God. That would not be good news if the God we can now know was not worth knowing. Think about that. God is the gospel, as one man said. He's the joy of all joys. He's the treasure of all treasures. Psalm 1611 says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Colossians 2 refers to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, whether our need is intellectual or enjoyment in any kind of capacity, you'll find it all in Christ. You'll find it all in the presence of our God. And 1 Peter 3.18 says this, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. If we're not saying that, we're not talking about the right gospel. The right gospel gets you in right standing with God. The gospel is not, are you feeling lonely? God can fill it. Is there this cross-shaped void in your heart and you need the cross? There's one thing you've not done. You've tried water skiing. You've tried being part of the badminton club. You've joined the jeep club. You've done this. You've done that. There's still something missing. Try Christ. That, ladies and gentlemen, is not the gospel. The gospel is about... You and I offending a holy God with something that we've done continually since the moment we were born and even before that. We were sinful in our mother's womb. And every day we've either thought wrong thoughts, spoken wrong words, or done wrong actions before a holy God. And these things are called sin. And we've sinned before a holy God. And God in His love sent His Son to... Make us right with Him and clear every debris, clear all the rubble so that we could stand before Him on the foundation of what God does for sinners. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross and rose again from the dead and is at the place of all authority in the universe and commands all people to repent and believe the good news that God is not willing that we perish, but all his elect come to repentance. And he's done it in Christ. He's achieved it. That we might know God. That's what we get in heaven. That's the ultimate good. Oh yes, we won't have bills there. Oh yes, we'll have enjoyment there. Oh yes, we'll see loved ones there. Oh yes, but the ultimate joy is God. The ultimate joy is seeing Christ. If you got to heaven and there was an announcement made that the Lord Jesus is out creating other universes right now, he'll be back in 10,000 years, there'd be something in you that says, that's not what I came here for. I want to see him. I want to see him. Can I see him? I don't want just a picture of him. Can I see him? Now we walk by faith and not by sight, but one day your eyes will see him. And that will be the joy of heaven. God. And so this is a God-centered church. This is a God-centered gospel. This is a God-centered Bible. All right, are we ready for verse 2? For good news came to us just as to them. Literally, these words mean we too have been evangelized. We too have been evangelized. A lot could be said about this, but let me say this. Evangelism is not merely something that happens outside the walls of the church. It happens when we meet. 
We celebrate the gospel, we proclaim the gospel, and guess what? In heaven, you will be singing about it, should you be there. You will be singing about the gospel all the time. Well, I say that, but there will be work for us to do, there will be things we do, but when we gather, we will be singing about the work of the Lord Jesus in giving us redemption. You see, the gospel is needed in the professing church. Not everyone who comes to church is part of the church. And everyone needs to hear the gospel. And get this, the gospel is for Christians as well as non-Christians. And you never get over it. You never get over the gospel. It's stunning. Even in heaven that will be the case. We'll be singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. There will be no one shouting out, that's the seventh song we sang about the cross. Can we do something else now? No, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That will be our theme. We'll be forever in awe of Calvary's Lamb. He got me there. Do you see it? Guys, girls, do you see it? He got me here by what he did alone. That's the only reason I'm here. Worthy is the Lamb. That will be our theme. And you might not be extrovert. You might be introvert. But there'll be something in you rising. I've got to sing about him. Look at him. He saved me. One man put it this way, the gospel is not just the ABC of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. You never get over the gospel. Apostasy happens when we get bored with the gospel. So, we read in verse 2, the good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard, literally the word of hearing, the word they heard, You realize this, the gospel is a message to be heard. It's news. You turn on the news, the newscaster hopefully doesn't say, today's a good day. I'm feeling good. My health's really good. And I've just had a pay raise. And uh, my wife bought me new socks. I'm feeling good. You'd say, uh, what is this news? No, the newscaster makes an announcement of things that hopefully have happened outside the studio. News events. In China, this has happened. In Belgium, this has happened. In Wisconsin, this happened. And the good news of the gospel is news. It's good news about what God has done in history in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are ramifications that affect us, but the gospel is outside of us. It's something that's happened 2,000 years ago, when God became man and dwelt among us and lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died and rose again from the dead. Can you say amen? Amen. That's a gospel message that has to be heard. But the word of hearing, literally, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Here's a warning. A warning from History, let us fear lest we be like them. Don't be like them. A warning from history that faith is necessary. It's a necessary condition. The Word, the Word of God, must be mixed with faith. Keep your place in Hebrews again and go backwards to 1 Thessalonians. All the T's are together. After Colossians, you find 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
Paul writes these words in verse 13. It's good for us to see them afresh. And we also thank God constantly for, for this, for that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so there's a hearing of the word, the word that must be heard, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So, thanking God for what is happening in their hearts, we thank God because when you heard the word of God, you didn't treat it like any other word, but you accepted it for what it really is, the word of God, and it went to work in you. That's the process. The word must be mixed with faith. Have you put faith in the word? Verse 3 of Hebrews 4. For we who have believed enter that rest. I need to emphasize this, so I'm going to say it again. For we who have believed enter that rest. The word believe is in the past tense in our translations. The ESV before us. It says, we who have believed. It's a past tense word. And the word enter is present tense. We who have believed, past tense, enter, present tense. Let me ask you, have you entered? How will I know if I've entered? Well, you have believed. Our faith must be a settled thing. We come to Christ and you and I say, you forever are my Lord. You forever are my Savior. It's a settled thing. We who have believed. Now, this is not a believing for things. That's a twisting of the gospel message to talk about things. It's believing the message, the message of salvation. It is believing the report of the Lord. We go back to the book of Isaiah. Whose report have you believed? Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord, the strength of the Lord being, being revealed? The strength of God, the power of God is in the life of those who have believed. And that's the key to entering into God's rest. That rest, keeping in view, is God's rest. The key to God's rest is to enter that rest by having wholehearted trust in the message and in the person of Christ. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath. Now, stating the very obvious, God is absolutely determined about something. God could just say, they're not entering in. But when he says, I swear they're not entering in, I swear in my anger, they will not enter in. Ladies and gentlemen, they're not going in. They're not going in. God is absolutely determined about this. They shall not enter my rest. In our vernacular, it ain't going to happen. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, we're talking about God's rest, my rest, and there's a quotation from Psalm 95, and it's quoted repeatedly in this passage, starting in chapter 3, verse 11, of my rest. And God invites us to share 
his rest. Again, imagine you being invited by the king to hang out with the king and enjoy all that he has as king. That's the kind of rest available to us. And he speaks of his work as finished. He entered into rest. You see that? They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And this is a clear reference to the book of Genesis. Verse 4, For he has somewhere spoken. I'm encouraged by that. He didn't know exactly where. Or if he did, he didn't say it. He didn't say. And I want you to be encouraged. You might not be able to quote the chapter and the verse and the book, but you know somewhere it says, you're in good company with the writer here, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That somewhere is the book of Genesis. We've read it already in the service, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 2. Let me go there just very quickly. Genesis 2, 2, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. When God rested, it was not because he was exhausted. God is not subject to any kind of limitation. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. He doesn't run out of energy. In fact, Psalm 121 verse 4 tells us God neither slumbers nor sleeps. I remember a lady praying this kind of a prayer. Lord, I know you're not going to sleep, so it means I can. So give me sleep. See, God doesn't slumber or sleep. So when it speaks of him resting, it's a stepping back from the job that has been completed and an enjoyment of the task now done. It's satisfaction over the job well done. On the seventh day, God was not going, I've got to rest. No, he stood back and he said, that's a good job. All is very good. I like that. Let's go to the book of Exodus, second book of our Bible. Chapter 20, which outlines the Ten Commandments. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This, by the way, is the longest uh, explanation for a commandment of the Ten. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Here's the reason. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. Are you a six-day creationist? Yeah, God is. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Go on to the right to uh, chapter 31. Exodus 31, verse 8. I think I've given you a different reference. Uh, actually, it's not verse 8. Thank you. It's, uh, 
12. The Lord said to me, you know, it was there. I'm sure it was verse 8 last night, you know. You ever had that? It's, it, it was there. It was there. They moved it. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, you ought to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you. Me and you being Israel and God. Think of a wedding ring. The wedding ring isn't the marriage, but it's a sign of the marriage. And the sign of Sabbath was the sign that Israel belonged to God as no one else did. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You should keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul will be cut off from among its people. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath, a solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Sabbath keeping kept Israel a separate and distinct people, and that fact was that the sign of the Sabbath was that sign that they were distinct, God's people. We could talk about that, but we're not going to say any more because we've got to get to verse 5. Verse 5, and again, in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Again, a quotation from Psalm 95. Again, if God says it once, that's enough. But you, you read this and you think, he's making the point, and then he's making the point, and then he's underlining it and putting it in bold. He's making sure this is known. Verse 6, since therefore it remains for, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter. Who's he speaking of? The entire generation under Moses, only two went in, Joshua and Caleb, except uh, for younger ones under 20. They failed to enter because of disobedience. Once again, it's a reference to Israel's history. And that word disobedience is significant. It's the Greek word apatheia. And it means literally, get this, not allowing oneself to be persuaded. There are some translations that uh, speak of this or refer to this word as disobedience, others as unbelief, because it's really a combination of the two. It's unbelief that results in disobedience. If someone were to run into this room and say this building is on fire, we might say, yes, amen, God bless you, and sit in our seat, and that would mean we didn't believe the message. If we believe the message, there would be a resulting action. Some would scream, no, some would show leadership, some would say, where's water, where is the fire, where's the exit, let's just make sure everyone's out. People will be doing different things, but what we didn't and what we wouldn't do, should that thing occur, is say, yes, amen, that's right. We would act. And so unbelief is that which then causes disobedience. It's a refusal to believe. It's saying, I will not believe. I will not come to Christ. I withhold my faith. I withhold my trust. And this centers in the will rather than the intellect. 
Many people understand the claims of Christianity, understand the fact that the Bible is God's word, they understand it, they understand that Christ appeared in human history, it's not just the Gospels, but writers outside attest to the fact that he came and that he was on the cross. All of these things can be verified by human agency outside of the Bible. All of the evidence is overwhelming and you can believe that and still not be a Christian by not putting your faith in Christ. The Bible talks about the work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, let me just read it to you. John 16 verse 8, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Here's the issue concerning sin. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. That's it. That's the big issue. What have you done with Christ? Have you trusted him? Verse 7 of Hebrews 4. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is all very familiar, isn't it? And that's by intention. I'm one of many who believe the book of Hebrews was a sermon. And when you preach a sermon, you don't say something just once and hope they get it. There's something called repetition. And that's what's happening here. I want to say this. Repetition is an effective tool of communication. Repetition is an effective tool of communication. I don't need to say it again, right? The writer is on a rampage. He's making sure this is not left off the table. You've got to know this. You've got to know this in your heart. You've got to come to Christ. Woe unto us if you don't. Woe unto anyone. Let us fear lest we not enter into the rest offered and promised to us. This is a great salvation as Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? That's what's in view here. The rest is found in your inheritance. And that inheritance includes salvation. Listen up. Don't miss it. Everything depends on this. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The writer of Hebrews understood the Old Testament very deeply, intimately, and he knew what they knew as Hebrew Christians. And the writer has already showed the difference and the contrast between Jesus and the angels, between Jesus and Moses, and now he contrasts Jesus and Joshua. Jesus is better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses, and Jesus is better than Joshua. Moses led the people of Israel but never took them right into the promised land. Joshua did enter the land, but because they didn't fully obey God, they never took full possession of it, nor find permanent rest. And that's the difference between Joshua and Jesus. He entered the land and brought all his people with him. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the, key, for the people of God. 
That's the message. Enter in by faith. That's what we read in verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 4. We who have believed enter that rest. Can we say that out loud together? We who have believed enter that rest. There's a remaining rest for the people of God. That's the message. And it's a result of true faith. Let's define what faith is. Part of it includes resting from your own works. Others have referred to faith as that which comes with an an empty hand, not with merits of our own. Lord, I want to be right with you, and here are some of the things I've done to be right with you. No, there's nothing, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross, I cling. Naked, come to you for dress. Poor, I'm coming in poverty. I'm poverty of spirit. I need you completely. That's the kind of hands that come and receives the bounty of God. So then, here's the conclusion. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. How are we to understand God in his resting? You see, after day six, God rested, and yet he's still active. He's sustaining all creation. If God wasn't active right now, our cells would evaporate. We would not have our cells held together between our ears. God is holding us together. He upholds all things by the word of his power. That's activity. But there's a difference in our Bibles between God's work of creation and his work of providence. And his work of providence continues. Jesus, in dealing with the Jews in John 5 verse 17, said this, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Father is about his business, and I'm cooperating with him. I'm on the same team. I'm working together. And that was a claim to equality with God. Everybody knew it. God is working in providence. To quote Phil Johnson in a sermon I recommend if you haven't already seen it, providence is remarkable. God is sustaining everything on earth. Not a sparrow even falls to the ground apart from the Father. But providence is distinguished from creation. How do we understand all this then? Creation was a finished thing on day six. And similarly, when we believe, we enter into, get this, the finished work of Christ. On the cross, Jesus didn't cry out, it's half done. I've done most of it. Now it's up to you. He said it is finished. In one word, tetelestai in the original language, Translated into English in three words, it is finished. It means it's paid for, it's done, it's accomplished, it's all over. I've done it all. It's a word that was used in the marketplace. If you bought some goods in the first century and you wanted a receipt, you would ask the store owner to write out a list of the things that you were buying and having paid for them, you would ask the storekeeper to write one word over the entire list. 
tetelestai, which means paid in full. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. I've done it. I've paid for it. It's finished. It's over forever. Hallelujah. And our believing enters into the finished work of Christ, just as God finished his work of creation, God finished the work of salvation with Jesus on the cross. Nothing more to add, nothing more to do. Yet, there's still more for us to do. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Genesis, Exodus, Ephesians, there we go. Chapter 2, describing how we're saved. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, what does that refer to? The grace, the salvation, the faith, all of it. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But what are the place of works? Don't they get us in? No, believing gets you in. Grace gets you in. God gets you in by what he did in the person of Jesus Christ, plus nothing. But now you're in Christ, you're a new creation, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, we do good things in society, yes, We serve our fellow man. Yes, we're part of a believing community. Yes, we do the things God commands and we joyously do them. But none of the things we do gives us merit before a holy God. Only what Jesus did in his finished work does. By grace are you saved. It's not your own doing. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. How did you get into heaven? Well, I helped over time 347 elderly people cross streets. That will get boring after the list of five things he comes up with. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. No. That's why our songs in heaven will not be, oh, the great list of things I did. But you might just sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. One song that will be banned, I believe, is I did it my way. Here's the conclusion, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. What? Make every effort. By the way, just a note in passing, this is the second of the 12 let us passages. Let us therefore strive. Be energetic to enter that rest. In other words, whatever you do, don't let this slip by. There's lots for you to do, but don't leave this undone. Let's strive, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of unbelief or disobedience. Strive. Strive to do what? Put all your effort into believing. Make sure you don't let this promise pass you by. Grasp hold of the gospel. Mix faith with it. Reformers understood Saving faith to have three components. They quoted Latin words, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. You can forget those words and still go to heaven. That's the good news. Notitia, we get our English word notice from that word. And that word means 
information. There's information in the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. Part of that information is that Christ died for our sins. That's information you need to know. We don't just say to people, believe, because they could ask, believe what? Well, we don't know what you believe, just, just believe. No, believe the information. And the information is what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. Second word, a census, is this. You've got hold of the information and you believe it. You believe it to be true. You believe that Jesus did what he said he did. He is who he said he was. And third, fiducia. And this is the component that gets you from simply a devil to being saved. I say that because the devil believes the information. He knows it to be true. James chapter 2 says, even the demons believe and tremble. So what marks you off from a demon is that you not only know the information, believe it, but you trust in the Savior. Think of a chair. You can look at a chair and think, that's a chair. That's good. You've got information and you believe it. You've passed the first two. Noticia and a census. You've got the information, you believe it. You believe that's a chair. And you believe that if you sat in that chair, it would hold you up. That's good. Faith isn't faith until you not only believe it's a chair, not only believe that it could hold you up, but that you sit in it. Faith is sitting in the chair. Faith is resting in the finished work of Christ. Faith is saying, you're my everything. I trust in you. You're my Lord, my Savior. I make you my Lord and Savior. I turn from all that I know to be wrong. I turn to you. Let's close as we go to Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, I remember studying the truth of divine election and being shocked to see Jesus not only believing it, but rejoicing in it. I thought, what's the difference? Even if I believe it, I wouldn't like to talk about it ever. Certainly not be excited about it. I thought, what's wrong with me? Jesus is excited by this. Look, look at this. I mean, look at verse 25. At that t time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things. That's the truths of God. Think about that. Jesus says, I thank you that you've hidden these things. You know, if God's going to hide something, no one's going to find it. He knows ahead of time where everyone's going to look. <laughs> you ever hidden something and they find it straight away? They knew where to look. No, Jesus thanks the Father that some things he has hidden. That's activity on God's part. You've hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now, the word election isn't in there, but the whole concept is. That's not my point. In the light of God hiding, in the light of God revealing, in the light of divine election, Jesus then says, without taking a break, without going off for three days and coming back and forgetting what he just says, in that context, he can say, come to me all. That's true Reformed theology. 
we understand that God has an electing purpose, and then we say, everybody come, knowing ahead of time, only elect ever will. Come to me all. That's the universal call of the gospel. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. That's the word of a king. And learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Come, Christian, enjoy the rest of God. How do I do it? By believing. Have you believed? And if you believe, keep on believing. He's trustworthy. He's worthy of your trust, no matter the hardship. No matter this veil of tears, there is ultimate joy coming, where God will wipe all tears away from our eyes. There will not be tragedy there. There will not be events that cause you to mourn. The moment you see Jesus, he will comfort your heart and you will enter into his ultimate rest. And we who have believed, you know the Bible speaks of a now and a not yet. Now we enter into the finished work of Christ in salvation, but there is a coming rest for the people of God that is still awaiting us. Don't give up on your faith now. You're almost home. The grace that has saved you will lead you all the way home. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Some of you could talk to me and you can say, yeah, tell me about it. Tis grace that has brought me safe thus far. Finish it for me. And grace will lead me home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rest found in our God, God's own rest. May there not be anyone under the sound of my voice who fails to enter into it by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.